I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with a person who is probably the most controversial Assembly member in Wales, (laughs) Neil McAvoy, who represents South Wales Central, is also a Cardiff councillor. He was elected as a Plaid Cymru uh, councillor and an assembly member, but he's been expelled by the party, but he's still trying to get back in. Um, you're a man of controversy, Neil, but uh, let's hear a bit about your background <laughs> first of all. You're a Cardiff uh, Yeah, right? Yeah, I, I, I try not to be controversial, actually, but it just seems to happen sometimes. You don't succeed very well at that, <laughs> um, uh, Anyway, yeah, I'm born in Fairwater in Cardiff. I went to Holy Family Primary School, lovely school, you know, great, you know, great, great place to to be educated. So I went to Bishop Hannon then in, in Pentrabane, which is sadly no longer there. And it was a really, you know, I'd, I'd say really uh, great upbringing. It was a close family, um, really hard-working parents, uh, great friends who I, I still have as friends now, right right from primary school. So, yeah, I, I think I was lucky in, in the area I was brought up in. Because one thing that a lot of people don't realise is that you're actually of uh, a mixed race background. Yeah, yeah. My my grandfather was from the Yemen, and uh, I think that's pretty apparent, especially when the sun when the sun comes out. My surname is McAvoy, which is uh, Irish. That's the Irish part. So my family's very mixed. My dad is from the north of England, but uh, with Irish ancestry. The biggest part of my genetic makeup is, is Irish, actually. Um, but I think the fact that my grandfather was uh, a, a Yemeni's seaman um, has, had a, has had a big impact on my life, really, because um, I'm not a stranger to racism. Let's put it that way. Have you experienced racism? Uh, God, you know, where, where do I begin, really? Um, I could write a book about the amount of incidents. Uh, where do I begin? I, the first time I ever became aware of being different, I think I was about four, and was called a packy um, by by somebody in the street, and I couldn't understand at the time why their the face was so ugly. I was a young child, you know, and I remember looking at this individual thinking, you know, why are you looking at me like that? And they using this word packy, and he, he flew across the street and punched me in the face. <laughs> um, so then uh, we had a fight. And uh, How old were you? Four. Four? How old was this other individual? Um, same age. You know, I think it was... Uh, a four-year-old racist? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was... Well, he wasn't... Obviously, he was repeating what he'd heard. But I made him five. I qualify that. I mean, it was four to five. Very young. Um, my mum was working, and uh, I was being looked after at, at a friend's house. My mum used to clean in the school. And um, so those, you know, those times... I'd, I'd be there very, very young. And that was my first introduction. And then I, I remember saying to my mother, Ma'am, you know, what's a packy? And uh, then she told me. And uh, it, it was an insult that, that I grew up with, really. Um, but we were living we were living in the 1970s. The, that kind of language was common. Um, in the 80s, I think, as well, that was common. All, all kinds of racial insults. I remember being in a pub once in, in Pontypridd, and I, I was looking through to, to the, the bar, and I remember, I don't know what language I can use on this broadcast, but the, 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 worst, the worst racial insult you can think of, mainly for Afro-Caribbean people. Um, so I didn't really think he was talking about me. And then he produced a huge knife and then stormed into the lounge where I was drinking. And I was with one person, a friend, who is as white as a driven snow. And when he saw the knife, he went whiter. And I suddenly realised the person who he was racially abusing was me. Um, if you'd have said Packy or something like that, I would have realised he was talking about me, but it was really extreme other It insults. was the N-word. Yeah, nigger, black, so-and-so, in my pub, wog, I'm going to go and cut his throat now. Um, so, you know, in life I'm not a stranger to confrontation sometimes because confrontation has come my way. I'd say that the most difficult kind of racism to deal with is, is the more middle-class, very clever kind of racism because um, racism is such a no-no now and this may sound strange, but when, when people are overtly racist, I almost find it a bit refreshing because they're being honest. And, uh, um, I, you know, I, I loathe it, clearly. Uh, but it's, there's, there's a kind of honesty to that, whereas I think there are lots of prejudices nowadays that remain hidden. And rather than call you words overtly, they'll generally refer to your character. 
and this, oh, you know, he's this, he's that, he's aggressive, and, and this and that. And I think quite often the, 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 there's a prejudice which, which lies behind that. And uh, that's my personal experience. It's the experience of uh, other people of mixed race, other people of, of colour. And I, I, I'm no different to them. We all grow up the same way and we all live live our lives the same way and we all put up with the same kind of um, stuff. And I'm, God, I'm probably going on now. But I remember being at an interview once for a job, head of department, teaching. And I thought I was sort of ahead of the race because the, uh, no pun intended, but the, uh, the head teacher said to me, oh, come for a cup of tea, love. You know, how are you doing? I thought, well, that's good. God, I'm the only, I'm the only candidate that's been, you know, called through for a cup of tea. And I sat down. And then all she talked about was my race. And she wanted to know where I was from. And she asked me, oh, it, the job was a, 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 a teaching languages, French and Spanish. So she said, oh, are you Spanish? I said, no. Oh, right. Oh, are you Italian? No. Are you Greek? No. And she went through every nationality almost. And in the end, she said, well, what are you then? I said, well, um, one part Arab. And the conversation stopped, and she said, oh, there's nice. And she put a cup of tea down, and that was the end of the chat. And then I didn't get the job. And whether or not her, her uh, asking me what my background was was a factor in that, I don't know. But I, I felt very uncomfortable with it. Um, but that, that's my, my experience, really. How did you get into teaching, then? Was that the, the thing that you did when you finished your education? Yeah, but by, by accident, really. I started, the first time I started teaching was in Spain. I was teaching English as a foreign language, um, more to finance my social life rather than anything else, because I, I, I was lucky to live in Taragotha in, in the northeast of Spain. Oh, fantastic time, great people, wonderful culture, really enjoyed it, and taught English, you know, that was a great experience. Um, I came back and I, I was just doing clerical work after I graduated. Where did you do your degree, by the way? I did it in Portsmouth, because at the time I wanted to study not just languages and literature, I wanted to study economics, politics, law, that kind of stuff, the stuff which really interests me. So luckily, the degree they had an offer there, which in those days was unusual, included politics and economics. So I did languages with uh, econ economics, history, politics, and a bit of law thrown in. It was, it was a very uh, tough degree to do, really enjoyed it. And um, but I always wanted to come back to Cardiff, so I look back and I was offered a job in Barcelona, and uh, I, I didn't take it. You know, I look back, I didn't take it because I wanted to come back to Cardiff to be with my family and friends. And I'm sort of um, quite a homely person, really, I, I would say. But I, 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 I don't regret a thing. I, I've loved my time with my family here, and my family is very important to me. So when did... Uh, I didn't say, sorry, I got on the teacher by accident. Yeah. Because I, I, I had a phone call off um, a former teacher and he said to me that there was a particular school in the city, I'm only embarrassed by naming it, but it's much better now. But it, had a very, it had a very tough reputation in those days and the, the Spanish teacher had had a breakdown with the children and I was told that no qualified Spanish teacher wanted to go and teach there. <laughs> so uh, I decided to take the job. So I wasn't qualified. Uh, I, I went in, I was only doing two and a half days a week uh, at instructor level, but supervising the whole class alone, and I really enjoyed it, and I was very enthusiastic. Unfortunately, my teaching skills weren't great, because I, I didn't really have the methodology, but got on really well with the kids, and um, decided to become a teacher after that. And you worked in schools? Worked in, in uh, secondary school, I, I worked in college, I went back to teaching a few years ago taught on supply initially, taught in primary school. I ended up in a, in a behavioural unit as well. Um, I'm sure that's where some people may think I belong sometimes, uh, given what they, what they say about me. But I, I enjoyed that, because the, the, these kids, for me, weren't really being given a chance. And I found it interesting to, to listen to them, to try and teach them. And what I then did, the last part of my career, was teaching children who couldn't go to school either for behavioural difficulties, illness also, or just the fact that they had really bad experiences and um, were, were ill also because a couple of the kids I taught couldn't actually go out of the house. They, they were agoraphobic. And it was a question of working with them, building their confidence, getting them out of the house eventually, trying to encourage them, getting that hook to make them learn. And sport was, was a great hook with, with, with some of them. And uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I think in teaching, you're dealing with the problem, really. And for me, the solution has always 
lied with politics, hence my drive to get involved in politics. So how and when did you get involved in politics? Always, really. I, I, I remember I was in the playground, aged about six, and organising votes to, to decide which games we were going to play, which is really funny looking back. And uh, always interested, you know, my, my parents had a big influence on that. My dad used to be a trade unionist. He, he was blacklisted in the 70s and couldn't work on certain sites, or I think most sites, actually. He was in the construction industry. Yeah, he was a, he was a welder, and he was a, he was a shop steward, and... Uh, Called a few strikes. One was there was a death on the site. He said, and he called a strike, and uh, and that was him done. Really, the, the the dispute was ended, but he was found that there was no work for him, and he found it difficult to find a job then. But if you look at the history of it with the Economic League, how they blacklisted people, then I imagine he was blacklisted, blacklisted there. And he's always advised me on on certain things, you know, what to do, what not to do, and advised me the consequences if I go ahead. Whereas usually I go ahead uh, anyway. Um, but uh, got really into sort of organised politics more when I was 15 I started reading the newspaper of the Workers' Revolutionary Party had a bit of a flirt with them then at I the same time Vanessa Redgrave was involved in that yeah, wasn't yeah, 1985 Jerry Healy? yeah, yeah he was a bit of a monster wasn't he? Um, I never met him um, never met he him. was uh, <clears throat> accused of um, sexual harassment in a very big way yeah, yeah all, all I recall at the time was reading the newspaper they were interesting but I realised after a few weeks they weren't really my cup of tea I've never been a, a Trotskyist and um, I told them I didn't want the newspaper any longer and I didn't want to be involved and in the, they kept on delivering the newspapers so I had this bill racking up every week you know, for the, the paper I had to pay and I remember in the end uh, taping up my letterbox <laughs> so they couldn't get it in and that, that was it then um, they didn't call back after that so they were like the Jehovah's Witnesses really to be honest without being derogatory to them what about the Labour Party? When did you get involved with the Labour Party? I was inspired to get into politics by, by Margaret Thatcher because I didn't agree with anything she was doing. And growing up on an estate in Cardiff, a uh, council estate, I felt that our life chances were very limited and I wanted to do something about it. So I walked into Transport House when I was 17 and I started campaigning for Roger Morgan to, to be elected in, in 1987. That was the first um, yeah. election, wasn't it, for him? Yeah. I remember my girlfriend at the time um, presenting him with a, with a bouquet of flowers uh, and his wife when, when, he, when he won on that night. And then, subsequently, you became a Labour councillor in Cardiff, didn't you? Yeah. I, I was first offered a seat in '95, but I didn't really think at that time I had enough experience to be a councillor. So I declined the, the nomination, and then I got elected by accident, really, in '99 because I got in in Riverside... But then I very quickly found out that I wasn't really part of the script because the, the I suppose the key players in Riverside Labour had had a few dinner parties, social events, invited the three people they wanted to represent them. That wasn't me. But on the night I went along, spoke well, answered the questions well, and um, democracy being what it is, I got elected, which upset some of them from, from day one, really, to be honest. So when you got on to the council, how did you get on within the Labour group? Because the Labour group was controlling the council at that stage, wasn't it? Yeah, we, we, had, we had difficulties. Um, I, I had difficulties. I didn't really agree with what Russell Goodway was doing. Um, I, I found the, the group very conservative. As, as time went by, though, what I would say for Russell, even though you would, you would disagree with him, he would always speak to you. So you, you, you'd have a row in a group meeting. And then you'd, you'd be at the bar later and you'd buy you a pint and you'd have a chat and have a bit of a laugh about disagreeing, really. Um, whereas I remember the other side of the party that I was supposedly attached to then, you had to do as you were told. It was supposedly the progressive left, but looking back, it was very authoritarian. And there was one particular thing I didn't agree with strongly, which, which was uh, councillors being paid to be councillors, being paid uh, an allowance, a much better allowance. Um, which was controversial at the time, but I felt that if if you w- were a working person and you wanted to to be a councillor, then you, ne- you needed to be paid, because otherwise you just couldn't really do the job, and that was controversial at the time. And I didn't do as I was told with the vote. I voted. I think I abstained actually on that one. Um, no, I didn't think I voted. I have to check that. But I didn't do as I was told anyway. Putting that, I, I was supposed to. Vote, I was supposed to vote against. And I didn't. I think I voted for it, actually. And um, I was ostracised then. I, I, you know, people wouldn't speak to me. 
And it was a strange experience because having disagreed with Russell Goodway so many times, but remained on uh, sociable terms, if you like, you know, you talk in the corridor and so on. The other side, the so-called progressive side of the party, would they they just completely uh, ostracised me. People wouldn't speak to me. There wasn't a seat in in pubs and so on. It was it was a bit of a strange experience. And then towards the end of that um, term as a councillor, yeah. you were deselected, so mm. they didn't um, uh, vote to reselect you for the forthcoming election. And that, that's that's the time when you defected to Plaid. Mm. I've heard people say. <laughs> This guy, he's just an opportunist because he's, yeah, um, he yeah. was deselected by Labour and then he came Aha. to Clyde. Right, the deselection, this was brilliant because this, this really, because I remember at the time I didn't really, not didn't really, I didn't agree with anything that, that Blair was doing hardly and I was totally anti-Iraq war. Perversely, I was being asked to oppose the Cardiff City Stadium, the, football, the new football stadium. Unbelievable that people thought that they would... Get me to to oppose that. My God, it was a great development for the city, and again, I wouldn't do as I was told on that because I thought it was better for the city that we we had a new stadium for Cardiff. And when it came to the selection meeting, it was really funny because we had to turn our phones off and so on, obviously. And I went into the selection. They only gave me a minute to present, so I'd been a councillor for four or three and a half years at that point, and I'd done loads in the area. But I was, it might have been two minutes. I was only given, it certainly wasn't more than, it was not more than two minutes. My memory fails me slightly. So I couldn't actually say what I'd done in the area. And I remember going into the selection conference and looking at the audience and thinking, oh my God, you know, I'm not as popular as I thought I was because where are my supporters? They're, they're not there. Anyway, cut long story short, uh, the selection was drawn. Every, the, the, one person got selected. Everybody else had an equal number of votes and they couldn't split it. And... I remember being told that even though it was a draw, I'd lost. <laughs> and I remember being on the phone to the highest uh, authority of the, of the Labour Party in Wales, reading the rule book out. And I remember that him saying, can I name him? Yeah. yeah. David Coston. And I, 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 whenever I see him, sometimes I do remind, remind him. And he said to me, the rule book may say that, Neil, but it doesn't mean that. <laughs> and it was classic. Classic New Labour. Or class, classic old Labour, actually. And what, what then happened, when I got home, disappointed that I hadn't won the vote, I turned my phone on and I had message after message after message of people who were not allowed into the selection. And On what grounds were they not allowed in? They were just kept out. They just weren't allowed in. And part of what I tried to do during that time was build links with the ethnic communities in, in Riverside, and basically, if you, the reality is if you were black or brown, you were not going in. And those communities took great exception to, to what happened to them on, on that night. We had a rerun of the selection uh, two weeks later. And this time I stayed outside with them. And even though they had the membership card, they had ID, I remember the person on the door saying, they're not on the list, they, cannot, they cannot come in. And I remember saying, well, I can even remember his name. Mohammed was his first name, but I won't say his second name, too embarrassing. And I said, there's Mohammed's card, there's his ID, here he is, this is him, he should be allowed in. Well, he's not on the list, Neil. Well, why isn't he on the list? Whose list is it? The list was drawn up by Labour Party Wales. Okay, right, so basically, these members have been active in the party, they've paid their money, but you're telling me they can't vote for their candidates. That's right. So I was faced with a dilemma then, do I go in and, and lose the selection? because they'd rigged who could and could not go in, or do I walk away? So I, I went in and um, just told them what I thought of them, really, in, in fairly diplomatic language, I must say. And I, I lost the vote, clearly, because people that wanted to vote for me weren't, weren't allowed in. The, the upshot of that was the, the communities in Riverside were very, very upset about it. And at the election, I, I then had a good think, because that was, that was the February in 2003, and I was looking at everything politically, and... Clyde Cymru's made overtures to me. Met, I met with the chief executive, had a chat with him. Had a, a completely different impression to the party that I thought it was. I did some reading. I really liked their openness and the fact that you were allowed to disagree and they did respect different opinions. And I ended up joining Clyde Cymru in the October 2003. I thought about it for a long, long time. I, I went away uh, 
in the summer for, for a good while. I was on a course in Spain, teaching course, and uh, spent the whole summer thinking about what to do. Came back and decided to, to throw everything into, into Pride. We fought the election in 2004, the following year, and we won two seats out of three in Riverside, which was unheard of. Uh, Plied were nowhere, and we increased the vote by roughly three over three hundred percent, and we took two seats out of three. But you weren't the, the you were the third but, one who yeah, wasn't the, elected. The, the, the irony was, oh God, it was it was a complete. Uh, I'll tell you what really happened behind the scenes. I, I trusted the play. I trusted their professionalism to deal with uh, the the knock up day. It was an important thing to knock people up on the night. So we had people on all the polling stations. And it was going brilliantly. We had the taxi drivers working uh, in their own time, ferrying people all around Riverside. It was going really well until about one o'clock when the Labour Party complained that we were using taxis and therefore incurring costs, even though they were taxi drivers using their own cars privately. And I wanted to have a row about it and tell the Labour Party to get stuffed and carry on doing the taxi in, because they weren't taxis, they were people's own cars. But Plaid caved in. And we stopped using the taxis roughly one o'clock that day. And then what was really funny, at the end of the day, I think it's about, say, three, four o'clock, we got to the knock-up, and everybody had been, been given the numbers in to the HQ. And I didn't think to actually check that they were doing the crossing out. So they had all the lists, and the people who were given the, the numbers were supposed to do the crossings out. And instead of doing the crossings out, they were just totaling up the number of people who voted. Because when you, when you run a knock-up, you, you cross off the people who voted, so therefore come four or five o'clock, you target those who have not voted and you get your extra 50 votes that way. And unfortunately, they hadn't run the, the office properly. And uh, I look back now, I, I laugh, everyone was so inexperienced back then, and it was my fault for assuming that they were going to do the crossings out. So when I turned up in late afternoon to do the knock-up, we didn't have any records to do the knock-up. We, we just had the, the, the whole bundle of support. So I remember saying, if any of us lose by 50 votes, this is the reason. And then it turned out I lost by 50. Um, I congratulate Alan Davis, the, the AM, because he ran a really good uh, personal campaign against me, I'm told, in Poncana, which explained the, the uh, reduction in my vote. But what, what was really positive was that I took over, as a councillor, a hell of a lot of support that formerly voted Labour, and they voted Plaid, and we got two out of three seats. What people wouldn't realise either is that I was really glad to get the break, because I'd worked so hard for years, and doing a full-time job as well is tough, so I was a full-time teacher at that point. And I, I really enjoyed just having four years off, and working in my community, which was Fairwater. I knew we'd win the seats, because I think if I'd, have stood, if I'd have stood in Fairwater, I would have won, actually, in 2004, but we wouldn't have developed the party in Cardiff, so... I stood in Riverside to, to do a job for the party, really. And then in 2008, I went back to suppose, where, where my heart is and or was then as well and stood in Fairwater and we, we wiped the floor with Labour. We, we increased the votes massively. Uh, I think it was a 300% increase and we won three, three council seats and uh, we won seven in all and I became deputy leader of the city. There was a coalition between mm. the Lib Dems and Plaid. Yeah. Were you surprised to find yourself the deputy leader of the council? Yeah, <laughs> yes, I was. Uh, I thought we'd win. I knew we'd do well, but I wasn't sure how the mechanics would work out, whether or not anyone would want to work with us. I remember myself and Rodney Berman didn't get on too well in, in those days, and um, the last two conversations we'd had with each other—I'm sure he won't mind me saying this—on um, both sides at different times, they both ended with off. <laughs> and uh, so I wasn't sure how we were going to get on because he was the Liberal Democrat yeah, leader he, he was the leader of the council, the council. Yeah. and because I'd given him a torrid time over a load of things and we sat down and we just did business because I think whether you agree or disagree you're in different parties there's a job to do for the city we sat down, we hammered out an agreement and we negotiated it we, there was compromise on both sides a lot of res mutual respect and I'd say a very respectful relationship grew between myself and I'd say Rodney Byrne especially and you know, many of the Liberal Democrat councillors and it's really funny I think um, we, were, we, we did work well together we were different personalities but I would say by the end of 2012 I, I and I still do totally respect the man you know, a very talented person and it was, it was great working with him for four years even though sometimes 
there were headaches behind the scenes um, because of disagreements with, with different groups. But we, you know, we I think we did we ran a, a very stable, very stable administration. So for you, what were the highlights of that period when you were the deputy leader in terms of delivering improved public services or whatever? We de- delivered it. It was my personal idea, the the capital card fund, which that levered in roughly, I think, over the two two and a half years it was running. Cause it took us a while to do the due diligence, get it sorted out, get it up and running. It was basically we we had uh, Dragon Den pitches in City Hall. We brought in investors, we brought in um, partners, and in total, and bear in mind this was in 2008 at the time of the crash and recession, we levered in about £7 million into the local economy, we saved and created roughly five, 600 jobs. It's actually made money for the council, because what the council did was take small sums of equity in those companies. So the company came in, they, they pitch an idea, they get investments, and the council would take, I think one was 2.5%, and I'm told the council have made a profit on that already because the, the, the company was successful, they developed, and the council have now sold their shareholding at a significant profit, I'm told. I don't know exactly what it is. I think also what we did was make Cardiff proud of being a, a, a national capital of, of Wales. We brought in the City Award, the, the Seren Owain Glyndwr, which was given to people who've done great things in the city residents I wouldn't say ordinary residents I would say Cardiff residents because nobody's ordinary and unfortunately when Labour got in they abolished it Um, I think they thought it was too nationalistic we also had a St David's Day festival promoting St David's Day we had a march I think with 10 over 10,000 people marching in 2011 we really got the city moted in there in that sense as a Welsh capital we worked collaboratively as well. Myself and Rodney Berman, I remember there was a really awful asylum seeker case and she was going to be deported and you know, she'd been trafficked here. We, we managed to stop that happening, but that was a, a personal highlight, really. Um, we invested heavily in schools. The, we opened six, six new uh, Welsh language schools, which desperately needed to be opened. And I think we gave, we gave the city a, a sense of purpose. Looking back, uh, there was a lot more we, we could have done, but uh, you know, you, you live and learn. It was a really great, great time. We opened libraries, we upgraded libraries, we opened youth clubs, and we, you know, we we put in playgrounds. We we cut pay at the top end, which I think made me some enemies who probably bit me later on, to be honest. And I remember being praised by the Taxpayers Alliance, this very very right wing conservative group, actually praising Cardiff Council for cutting the wage bill. We we took out a hell of a lot of salaries above £100,000 a year because I, I didn't feel we needed them and so we, we saved the taxpayer money and we ran a, a very sensible ship. To give you an example, when the uh, recession hit, Cardiff was the only city in Britain where the building trade output actually increased. It was 0. something percent but what, what was done was, and it was a very sensible decision, we just basically front-loaded the budget for the first couple of years with kitchen refurbishments and things like that. So we did as much as we could to to enable the city to to ride out the the really bad economic time. Yeah, the, the, I could go on all day really and bore bore the listeners senseless, but it was a very positive, very positive administration. Finally, I'll add though, and I'll, 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 this is the proof in the pudding: the trade unions wanted to do the the equal pay negotiations with our administration, so it was us who brought in equal pay in Cardiff, and I'm, I'm proud of being partly responsible for that. Now, it was the first time that Plaid Cymru had ever had a part in an administration in Cardiff. Mm, And Cardiff isn't really the epicentre of Plaid Cymru support in Wales, is it? I mean, when we think of Plaid Cymru, you tend to think of uh, northwest Wales, you think of places like Carmarthenshire. There have, of course, been times when the party has run the councils in the valleys, but Mm. that's tended to be a... Uh, you know, rather temporary measure, and then um, the default mm. position has been to yeah. vote Labour. How did you go about seeking to get people in Cardiff to vote for a party that was perhaps a bit alien to them? The, the first thing we had to do was show them that the party is the party of Wales for everybody in Wales, and that we actually want to do things. I, I suppose really there, there was a, a brand detoxification process to go through because people didn't really know what, what the party was about. 
a couple of years prior to joining that I hadn't. It, it was well, it was a well kept secret and still is in in too many parts of Wales. But what what listeners may not realise is the the biggest growth in Plaid membership and also uh, Plaid support is in Cardiff. Since 1999, we've increased the vote in Cardiff West 300 percent. Oh, you know, more than tripled the the vote in the in back in 2004 that election. We had an interest in only two areas, which was Fairwater. Uh, sorry, not Fairwater. It was Craigie and Riverside. By the time you know, fast forward to 2017, we came second in 20 seats, 20 seats, and we came third in in, in, a, in a further five. We only won three, but then a load of in snooker terms, a load of balls over the pockets to pop next time and you know, the, growth, the growth has been remarkable really and if you look at the applied vote across the rest of Wales nowhere compares to Cardiff in terms of growth because unfortunately across most areas in Wales since 99 we've really really lost support um, but what we do is get involved and we, we show people that we care and it's all also about action and getting things done so Right the way back, 2005, we were helping people fight evictions, for example. And when you save somebody's home, then it's something they don't forget. And also, you build friendships there that you don't forget. And it's it's all about, at its most naive, it's all about helping people and letting people know that you've helped people. And it's also, to be honest, being robust politically and calling out the opposition for what they are sometimes. And the thing is, as you know very well, while you have your supporters and you have something of a fan club actually there are people who absolutely detest you yeah yeah and this i suppose all started although there were obviously people in the labor party you mm. didn't get on with but it really burst into the public domain uh, back in about 2011 didn't mm. it at the time yeah. when you'd made some comments about a couple mm. of women's organisations, yeah. which you subsequently apologised for. Um, I, 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 I apologise for my language. I've never yeah. apologised for the substance of the allegations. There are those people who say that you are some kind of misogynist or that you've got some problem with women generally. Mm. And a, a lot of uh, people who are involved in equality issues, who are feminists, simply don't like you and believe that mm. you are misogynistic. Why do you think that that image of you has been able to be perpetrated? I think that there's a great spin machine. I take my hat off to Transport House and Labour and also the lobbyists who, who work on their behalf. They smear people. They, if you take on these vested interests, then they will denigrate you. They will ruin your reputation. I think if you look at the way Carl Sargent was completely denigrated, embarrassed... Uh, th- these people are ruthless, and th- they've had their. Uh, let me. I- I'd like to say, actually, uh, on record, that I-, I feel that that man was completely innocent of what he was accused of as well. And because in Welsh politics, there's a lot of smoke, and there is no fire. It's a part. Of, it's part of a political strategy. Very often in Wales, there is a politics of complaint, where people will file complaints, and they hope that there's some damage from the the victim. Then, really, because you are a victim in that those circumstances. Really, the hatred began. When I left Labour, I I remember being sworn at, uh, insulted in in City Hall by, ironically, a a former female councillor, although she was still a councillor then, and um, treated in a really appalling way just for choosing a different political route, if you like, and being openly sworn at in the streets. I won't mention names here, very prominent people. It just be I, I, the irony is I'm the boy from the council estate. I'm the person who they say is aggressive and so on and so forth. And yet I'm the person who's sworn at it. It was happening. It happened again in the assembly last week outside the chamber. I, I shout. I was shouted at. And again, I, I didn't really respond other than just smile and an off the cuff comment. And it, it tells me I'm doing my job. But in terms of I think what I was saying back in 2011 in terms of the equality agenda. Now fast forward seven years has been borne out by the findings of the Commission for Equality, whereby men are simply being discriminated against in, ter- in terms of domestic abuse support. And um, What really concerns me is that the number of parents who are kept out of their children's lives when there's no good reason to do that, and 
in the Assembly recently, experts gave witness testimony to the Petitions Committee that they said that this was emotional abuse. Now, that's the term that got me in trouble back in 2011. In some respects, I wish I used less polemical language, but the reality is that we have a system here in place in Wales whereby it's very easy to play the system and there are very, very few, well, there are not safeguards to, to protect people and people who are innocent of things are unable to prove it because there's no opportunity. So not only are you guilty before proven innocent, you're also unable to provide any evidence to, to defend yourself. And in, in terms of family court and so on, then allegations, unfortunately, play a very prominent role in, in those kind of proceedings. And the biggest losers are children. So all I've actually said, and the, the ombudsman back then, dif different ombudsman, um, found in my favour when, when the complaints were made in, in 2011 about me, which people don't realise. The ombudsman um, said that I'd been treated unreasonably by these groups who had complained about me because for a period of years prior to my outburst, just a frustrated outburst really, in 2011, which I have learned from actually, but he said that they treated me very unreasonably because I've been asking them for two years to look at their policies. So, for example, if you were supporting a parent who is breaking a court order, then there should be a policy in place because there's some, there should be some safeguard because sometimes there may very well be a good reason to break a court order and far too often these orders are broken and uh, th there is nobody taking responsibility for it. I have cases where children have alleged abuse in the care of parents and the parents have been supported by uh, charities. So you've got kids making allegations and charities being supported by, by public money. And, and what really is outrageous is when, when you look at the system, you get to the nitty gritty, the children are bottom of the pile. You know, I, I, I remember being in a child protection conference where I raised a credible threat, a credible paedophile threat to a child in who was the subject of these, this, uh, this conference, and they wouldn't discuss it. They didn't even minute it. And I remember somebody in the conference saying, that won't happen again. Unbelievable. All, all the complaints I made were upheld by the safeguarding board, and yet I was banned from any further child protection conferences. They, they, you know, I, I think th this whole area is a minefield, and it's ideologically driven. And what, what, what needs to happen is people need to stand back, look at what's important, which is the safety of children, and that needs to be top of the agenda, really. And yet, you, a few minutes ago, you invoked the name of Carl Sargent. Well, mm. Carl Sargent, of course, was somebody who yeah. crusaded uh, a lot um, about domestic violence against women. Mm. And it is the case, isn't it, that um, the great majority of domestic abuse situations involve men physically abusing women. Mm, the, the figures are changing very rapidly. I think it's, it's um, one in three now. One in three victims are, are male. What is also changing as well, especially through the casework in my office, is the, the denial of contact, which is a form of domestic abuse as well. There's a higher percentage of women now, mums walking through the door, who are not seeing their children. But the, the problem with, with Wales is that the domestic abuse of males is just not recognised. It does happen. Okay. So... At a time when, back in 2011, there were those people who were perhaps trying to get you expelled from Plaid at that stage. Yeah, God, yeah. You managed to fend that off, and mm. then uh, in 2016... Mm. What, what people... Cut, cut in there, Martin, if you don't mind. What people wouldn't know is that it was Rodney Berman, the Liberal Democrat, who, who saved my job at that time, because certain people were um, trying to make sure that I... I I was no longer going to be the, the group leader of, of the Plaid Group, let's say. And I'd like to thank my colleagues who were great support there. You know, Keith Parry, Lisa uh, Ford, my sister, uh, Dami Bowen, they were brilliant. They were so supportive. And, but Rodney Berman just point-blank refused to, to get into any debates with uh, certain people about uh, changing the deputy leader of the council. Hmm. And uh, total... You know, how weird is that where you've got people in your own party trying to get you thrown out of a position and then somebody you'd worked with for three and a half years uh, diligently and, and well from a different party actually defended me and that, that's something I won't forget I won't, I won't forget that. In the run-up to yeah. the 2016 Assembly election mm. 
you got selected uh, on the list. Yeah. And in fact, if my memory serves me correctly, in the first ballot, you actually got more votes than uh, the party leader, Leanne Wood. Yeah, I did. Or she subsequently became the party mm, leader. Yeah. Can, can I say that as well? I, I was blamed for leaking the figures. I never did, because the figures that were leaked were wrong. And they were more favourable to Leanne than actually the real figures. Okay. But you did manage to uh, get into the second position, yeah. which meant that you were elected to the Assembly. Had you thought that you were going to get elected to the Assembly? Because you, you obviously put up quite a big fight in Cardiff West. Um, you didn't manage to unseat Mark Drakeford, who, mm. let's be honest about it, is likely to be the next First Minister. Yeah, yeah. Um, you didn't manage to unseat him, but you came, what was it, about 1,100 votes behind? Yeah, we, we were very very close. Um, I knew... I knew I was extremely confident that I could win that election in Cardiff West. People thought I was mad. But I, I remember in 2003 I predicted that we'd be the biggest party in local government in Cardiff West in 2008. And we were. And I said that we were going to win in 2016. In 2015, we doubled the votes in the Westminster election. And I knew that I couldn't do everything, so I had a chat with the wife. And uh, well, she wasn't my wife then, she was my fiance, And uh, we agreed that I would stop working, stop full-time work, and focus on the, the campaign. So it was a hell of a sacrifice, and I threw myself into the campaign, built up a great team, a great team of people. So many, so many people got involved in that campaign. It was phenomenal. We, we, we were lucky enough to get some donations and have a, an office in Riverside then, and uh, we had a fantastic campaign. And I, I think really... I was very, very confident of winning. And as I said, fair play to my wife, Kerry. It wasn't until, I think it was April 2016, we were having a meal a couple of weeks before the election. And she said, oh, well, me, uh, if you don't get elected, what's plan B? <laughs> and I said, no, there is no plan B. And because, I, I mean, the, the, the cost of not working for a year, losing a, a good salary, actually, a good amount of money at the time, was uh, difficult and so we, you know, went, we went into debt, but I, I believed in, in what we were doing. And uh, fair play, it, it took Kerry 11 months to ask me uh, what plan B was. There was a month, so I was confident we were going to win. And uh, that, that's how it, we didn't win, but, but I got elected. And I knew that if we had a great campaign across the region, that we, I would get in on, on the list as number two. And that's the way that it turned out. I was disappointed, though, really, I suppose, with the party at the time. Again, people wouldn't know this. I'm being indiscreet here, so you know, keep this quiet. Um, in in the new year, I was the only target candidate to lose a thousand pound a month, um, which would have been handy. Also, how did you lose a thousand pounds? Well, uh, we, you mean from funding? From funding, yeah. They uh, the one organizer resigned, and we had an, I wanted to employ another organizer, and they wouldn't let me. That's the, I lost a thousand pound a month. And also, this was really funny as well, looking back. Our figures were great. They're going up week in, week out. We were diligent, and you could see we were catching, catching labour. And then at the beginning of March, they they took staff off me because <laughs> they'd allocated staff to target seats. And then all of a sudden, we're doing really well, and they took staff off me, and they were sent to Command and West, which was Plaid's worst result in Wales. And um, despite all that, we did brilliantly... We just had such a great campaign, and uh, you know, I remember going. You know, it, it was so social as well. I remember, you know, popping into the Weatherspoons in Canton, drink, having a drink after cam, you know canvassing, staying way too late, talking with people, going home a bit bleary-eyed, and my wife not being too pleased about it. And then uh, those very same people from the Weatherspoons the night before turning up in the campaign office and and working for us. So uh, it was it was a great a great time, a lot of fun. Great, great, great campaign. And yet, it didn't take long after you were elected before you got into conflict with the other members of your group, and then there were complaints being made from both within the party and outside the party. What went wrong? I think I kept my word. I, I was elected on the strap line of not politics as usual. The, the, the way politics was done in the Assembly was fairly consensual. I think there, there, there was a lack of robust opposition People were not used to being questioned. I did a freedom of information request, for example, of all the ministers and their diaries, because I, I, I believed that... The First Minister said that lobbyists didn't have access to ministers. He subsequently changed that view, 
So he gave the the, 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 the assembly the assembly two different answers. So I wanted the ministers. I, I had a fair idea that meetings had gone on. So I wanted the ministers' diaries to to cross reference really with different companies, and they refused to to, to disclose the the diaries of the ministers. So we had we had a row about that, and. When I, I remember somebody on the phone saying to me, well, it's, it was very unusual to hear from an Assembly member. And, well, uh, no Assembly member's asked for uh, the diaries of ministers before. Like, oh, my God. So the place has been going 17 years, and nobody thought to to ask for the, minister, the, the, the diaries of ministers. So who was saying Stag- that? Staggering. Was that somebody you would imply? That was an official. Uh, uh, what, yeah. an official of the Welsh Government? Yeah, yeah. And because what then happened was I, I, I kept on uh, kept trying to keep the pressure up, and now ministers publish their diaries. Um, how much detail goes in them you know, remains to be seen, but at least, at least they're published now. Having been around in Cardiff for so long, having been deputy leader and so on and so forth, you get to know a lot of people. And just many people just started telling me things, which I found quite questionable. So I would ask questions, and then invariably the whistleblowers would be right. So, you know, For example, the, the, the two shops losing a million pounds in Pontypridd, that was a scandal. I've not let go the, the, the Lisbon land deal. You know, people should be, in my opinion, people should be in jail over that deal. People lose, you know, the, the public losing 39 million. Outrageous. I started asking questions about lobbyists. I think that's where it went wrong majorly when I started asking questions about lobbyists and saying that lobbyists should be regulated because uh, these, these lobbyists are very well connected right across the political spectrum. And they've got a lot, they have a lot of influence in Labour, a lot of influence in Plaid, and they don't like to be questioned. That got me into a lot of trouble, really. So you've got to a point where you got kicked out of the Plaid group because the other members of the group said they couldn't work with you. Um, I got kicked out initially, um, allegedly for uh, the nonsense over the ombudsman, where I attended an eviction hearing to try and save a poor family from being evicted. It was a single mother and child, daughter. They told the judge that she was the biggest debtor in the city. She wasn't. The judge took a dim view of of her denying that and so on and so forth and evicted her. We got outside. The the woman was going to meltdown and I remember comforting her. And She said, Neil, you've got to do something about this. This this is just not right. This this can't happen to anyone else. And I said, listen, I said, we're going to change it. I I can't wait to restructure the council. We're going to change things. And we're going to make sure that these, this kind of thing doesn't happen again. But and for that... That's all I said. For that, yeah. you were accused of bullying yeah. and a panel decided yeah. that you had engaged in bullying and yeah. were in effect a bully. So what do you think about that? Um, a political show trial, really. Let's go back to September, when it happened, September 2015. The ombudsman investigator threw the case out. There was no, no case to answer. I was then told that the ombudsman himself had personally intervened and said that it must be investigated. So why? my question to anybody listening is, after it's been looked at and dismissed, why did the ombudsman come in and say it had to be investigated? Uh, I wanted to see the emails justifying his decision. They refused to disclose them. What then happened was an investigating... Oh, no, I'll, I'll be really indiscreet here now. Can I mention a name of the person who phoned me up one time? Yeah, well, I was called. I was called up by Roger Glyn Thomas, bless him. Former Plaid Cymru AM. He was a Plaid Cymru AM at the time. And he said, Neil, you can't take the ombudsman on. What are you doing? I said, well, listen, I haven't done anything wrong. Listen, listen, do as you're told. Don't do this, don't do that. I said, well, wait there, Roger. How do you know about this? I said, because this is confidential. Oh, Nick was in my office yesterday and we were talking about your case, blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God. Right. So what then happened... Uh, I we had an exchange of text messages proving that there had been reference to my case, let's put it that way. I then did a freedom of information request on the, the diary of the ombudsman and they wouldn't disclose his whereabouts. Anyway, I appealed, or I wrote back again and said this is not good enough. And lo and behold, the very day that I said he was in Rodney Glyn Thomas's office, he was. So anyway, forget that, that's just like sort of an aside. Um, I wasn't allowed to bring witnesses the to, to, to the tribunal I was allowed one and that was the person who was evicted and they dismissed their evidence as unreliable or words that effect uh, they then said that I was a bully and the, the key point is though the, the person I was allegedly accused of bullying 
in saying that we want to restructure the council. And she wouldn't have been affected by a new restructure, by the way. Um, never made a complaint. It, it was a Labour councillor who made a complaint. And, uh, and then, for some reason, just at the beginning of the election campaign, Plight, the Plycomry group decided to suspend me, despite me and others begging them not to do it because we wanted to just get on with the election and win seats in Cardiff. What people wouldn't realise as well, timeline, was roughly, and it was 10 days before that, that was the time that I'd made the complaint about the lobbying firm Bering. So 10 days after that, I was suspended. The reason given was the nonsense with the tribunal. And of course, what happened then was that you were suspended as a councillor for mm -hmm. a month. Yeah. Uh, and then... The aftermath of that was that you uh, went along to a Plaid Cymru conference in Newport, <laughs> yeah. uh, and that led to yeah. your uh, being eventually expelled from Plaid Cymru, didn't it? Yeah, God, you know, I'm, I'm walking up to the conference, you know, and the, the, the chair's on the phone, oh, stop this, stop this demonstration, well, you know, what do you want me to do? Members had placards with my name on, and they clapped me in. Now, I, what, what should have happened? Somebody senior from the party should have greeted me at reception welcomed me and took me in. That's solidarity. That's what... I think if a Labour politician would have been accused of something similar, I think that's what they would have done. Whereas uh, we didn't do that. It was just ordinary rank-and-file members who, who welcomed me. My, my speech was really brief. All I said was, thanks, you're welcome. It was totally unfair. And I'll appeal and let's get on with the conference. That, that's all I said. And then in the conference, I, in my speech at the very beginning, I referenced the fact that the, the person who was evicted and her daughter were victims that day. They were the real victims, not me, not the uh, eviction officer, but those two people who had their lives turned upside down, thrown out of their own own home. Um, and there was no need to do it. The, the following day, we we had raised enough money to pay off the, the arrears, and the council wouldn't accept the payment. So they, they were thrown out, and uh, they were the victims. And I don't understand why Plaid Cymru can't see that. What well, they do, they do, actually. They, most of the members are brilliant, and... Uh, it's the current leadership that decided to, to use that against me. You don't have a very high opinion of Leanne Wood. Um, Leanne is Leanne, I think, as is, is, is she said about me one time, Neil is Neil. Um, I, I, I wish that Leanne would have maybe just spoken to me really sometimes. And If you manage people, you need to speak to them, you need to engage and uh, try to work with them. I, I was able to work with Rodney Berman from a really negative start well, we remember we both threw obscenity at each other at one point, uh, and we worked together brilliantly. And I always work with people. My whole track record in, in my professional life is building teams as well. And uh, you know, it's a shame that we weren't able to do that in, in the assembly group. Has Leanne Wood made it clear to you that she doesn't like you? Um, well, I think it's yeah. You know, I've read the emails that she sent about me. So I think it's pretty, pretty clear. It's unfortunate because um, you don't have to like people to work together. I've known Leanne 25 years, you know, so it's, it's unfortunate that, that the way things are. But uh, there's still a job to do, and party members voted for us, the public voted for us. It was our duty to get on, and I think we've all failed, actually. We've all failed in, in not being able to, to work together. Now, you're out of the party... They recently reduced your what, expulsion mm. to a period of 12 months. Are you going to challenge that expulsion? Uh, well, I'm meeting my lawyer <laughs> next, next Thursday. Uh, I've, got, I've had several legal opinions. Um, uh, fair play, I've had a, a great QC in, in London advise me. I've had uh, Barris advise me. I've had a brilliant firm um, in, in the Bay, Blake Morgan, advise me really well. They, they say I've got a great case because of a, a complete absence of natural justice, an absence of fair play. You, know, you cannot change the rules halfway through a process. How do they do that? Well, they. The, the, the problem. I, I was told informally that there was a problem in July 2017 because they looked at the complaints and apparently I hadn't broken any rules. So what they needed to do was change the rule book so that I had broken rules. And bring in new punish a new new punishment so that they could kick me out, and the, they were railroaded railroaded through conference. There wasn't really a discussion. The vote was disputed as well because the, the chair refused to, to read the vote out at the time, and uh, we are where we are. The, the complaints were were 
dealt with, the, the new rules were, were used, and complaint and the punishment didn't re- exist when when the so-called offences were, were, were committed. And but the, what annoys me is the BBC especially because all the BBC ever reports are behaviour issues. The behaviour is as you stated, me being welcomed to a conference and saying in a speech that the, the woman was a victim. Other than that, I forwarded my solicitor's letter outlining the breaches of process to party members to let them know what was going on because it was constantly in the media. You know, I had a phone call or phone calls off you know, another Wales online journalist who seemed to know everything because the complainants had told her. The BBC knew everything and I, I didn't know anything half the time. And I would pick up information I would pick up information about the process through press conferences where the BBC would tell me what's going on. And that's just not acceptable, really. Because you were accused of leaking information relating to the complaint, because it's all supposed to be confidential. But they'd already. The irony there is that the complainants had already gone public, because it was all coordinated by the, the lobbying firm Dering, and uh, yeah, most people in the Bay know that. You know, it's. I could clearly. I have a very strong case. Do I want to give Plaid a hundred and fifty thousand pound bill to pay? Probably not. So I'm going to speak to the lawyers, see where we are. The, the, the issue, as is, I'm told, is one of contracts. There's a six-year limitation with contract. So I could just as well wait until next March, reapply. If I'm not dealt with fairly then, then maybe we could be looking at the, the nuclear option. I don't know. It, I, the decision is not mine alone to take. I need to speak to supporters. I need to speak to party members because I'm only where I am because of the public and because of party members. Uh, they're my bosses, and I need to listen to them and see what they want me to do. Some people may find it odd that very recently you've launched a new group mm. called Propel, Propel yeah. which is said to be a Plaid-linked group, yeah. but you're the person who's launched it and you're not a member of Plaid. I'm a, I'm, a sp- I'm a spokesperson. Luckily, you don't have to be a member of Plaid, so those listening, take a look at the website, propel.wales, propel.cymru, you don't have to be a member of Plaid to join, though we don't accept any members of other parties operating in Wales. It's been quite a few months in the planning, actually, and it's just unfortunate that I am where I am. It doesn't make any difference. As I said, you don't have to be a member of Plaid. What we want to do is renew and revitalise democracy in Wales. Tough questions have to be asked. We have to shine a light on people in the shadows in Cardiff Bay, in the lob- on the lobbyists, the way they, they, they operate, the way they, they get contracts without contracts being advertised, so on and so forth. But what we want to do politically as well is change the shift of the debate to sovereignty, individual sovereignty. People should have individual rights in Wales guaranteed in a constitution. People should be sovereign economically instead of dependent. And we need to empower people. People should have the right to be innocent until proven guilty. On a community level, what we want is community sovereignty, whereby communities decide what goes on in their locality. We could have a local referenda, for example, on local development plans. So when 99.9% of a local population oppose something, it shouldn't happen. It's, it's as simple as that. On a national level, clearly, we support national sovereignty. Our parliament in Cardiff should be sovereign, and it should be the, the people of Wales who decide what happens to this country. And I think we have a, a duty and responsibility to stand on our own two feet and govern ourselves. The next Assembly election is in 2021. Do you think you'll be a Plaid Cymru candidate then? I'll definitely be a candidate. I asked you whether you thought you'd be a Plaid Cymru candidate. <laughs> that's, 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 it's, not, it, it's not in my gift. I would love to be a Plaid Cymru candidate, but I will be a candidate. Everybody out there knows that the one person who can beat the next First Minister is me. And it's our team. I, I'm just a figurehead of many, very many people behind me, supporting me. You know, that's apparent on social media, it's apparent with, with people who deliver leaflets for us, so on and so forth. I want to be a Plaid candidate. I want to take on the next First Minister. I want to expose and oppose Labour and replace them in, in government. The whole thrust of Propel is that we want to make Plaid fit for purpose. We don't want to be a pressure group influencing Labour. Ply, uh, Propel is a pressure group implied to make Plaid into a political party challenging for government. But if you're not readmitted to Plaid Cymru, 
you could be a candidate in 2021 for Propel Cymru. I, I wouldn't have thought so. I, I, in, I thought we couldn't do it in, in the company articles because we're there to, to promote the aims of, of Ply Cymru. I, I think I'll be back in plight, if, if I'm perfectly honest, because I think the, the legal case is overwhelming. And if I'm honest, honest with you, when members see what they possibly could see, they're not going to sanction spending £100,000 on a legal case, which shouldn't happen. So if you're not readmitted, you'll stand as an independent? I think I'll be readmitted. But I'll, I'll definitely stand. Neil McAvoy, thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Mm-hmm.